Alright, let's let's read Psalm three in its entirety. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing this morning as we look to your word. We confess, Father, that in and of ourselves, uh, that the word is spiritually discerned and away from our grasp. So, Father, we call on you, O Lord, that by way of your Holy Spirit, that he will teach us and lead us and guide us and work in such a way uh, in our hearts that we would find correction and encouragement, uh, rebuke, uh, and grace, Father, uh, in this uh, sacred uh, passage that we have just read. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we have finished our study in spiritual warfare, and uh, some of you know well that really uh, my, my style is really to try to go from New Testament to Old Testament, New Testament to Old Testament, and uh, especially when we're in uh, Paul's letters. Paul's letters are, uh, are, are, are very dense, aren't they? Uh, uh, you can sometimes preach entire sermons on little phrases and it takes a while to work your way through a significant part of, of Paul's letters. And we saw that in Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20. It took a good while to get through those verses, didn't it? Something like a baker's dozen of Sundays, I think it took us to get through that material. And in some ways, coming back to the Psalms, I think is a nice way in, in, to rest. Uh, not that the Psalms are simple and that they're uh, not to degrade the Psalms in any way, but uh, the, the Psalms, I like to come back to the Psalms when I'm in between things. I, I couldn't Im really imagine doing a series of setting out to, to, to teach on all 150 Psalms at one time. Uh, that, would be, that would be quite a task. It has been done. It would take years to get through. Uh, it would be a great task. Uh, what I like to do is is, is um, come to it from time to time. And uh, that's what we do this morning. Now, having looked at Psalms 1 and 2 in earlier messages, I'm just picking Psalm 3 because that's what comes next. There's nothing scientific about that. It's, I, I learned a long time ago that 3 comes after 2. And, and uh, seems to work out too. So that's, that's really all I'm, I'm doing. Uh, with all kidding and laughter aside, uh, there is a structure here. Uh, there is nothing willy-nilly about the placement of these psalms. These psalms have a structure. And uh, Psalm 1 and Psalms 2 uh, form an introduction to the Psalter. Uh, psalm 1, if you look at it briefly with me, 
It opens up with blessed is the man or the blessed man, if you will. Um, uh, and then verse 4, uh, the wicked are not so. Uh, there's a description of the blessed man. There's a description of the wicked. And that sets the tone, if you will, uh, for the Psalms. There are only two types of people. There are those who by faith are righteous. And there's the rest who uh, the Bible doesn't mince any words. Uh, they are the wicked. They are the evil. We would like a third category. We would like to say, well, you know, I'm not, I really don't want to be in this other category, verses 4 and onward. But I'm really not sold to verses 1 through 3 either. Well, sorry. Uh, there is no um, uh, third category. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. Uh, there's only two categories. And when we come to Psalm 2, uh, it opens up with, why are the nations raging and the peoples plotting and the kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord's anointed? Uh, here we see this raging, this uh, plotting, this scheming, this devising, Verse 3 is their purpose, their, their, their motto, their, their agenda, if you will, is to burst the bonds apart and cast away the cords of the anointed. In other words, they don't want the anointed one. They don't want the Lord's Messiah reigning over them. They're pushing against Him. Uh, they're, doing, they're railing against Him. They're doing everything that they can to remove Him, if you will. Uh, so here we see there are uh, two types of kingdoms and only two there's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of the world so we have two types of people and two types of kingdoms now it's really popular today to hear people preach that all you have to do is hand your life over to Jesus and life is going to be swell for you after that it's, how many have heard that probably all of us and with a lot of false teaching, and that's false teaching, by the way, with a lot of false teaching, uh, Satan comes to us not with things that are really blatantly wrong. He often comes to us with things that have kernels of truth in them, but they're twisted. There's a sense when you hand your life over to Jesus, everything does go well for you. Ultimately, uh, you enter into eternal life in Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus says, this is eternal life that you may know the Father and me whom the Father has sent. And you're brought in, you're, you're, you're hidden in Christ when, when you put your faith and trust in Him. And your biggest problem is solved. How are you going to stand before a holy and just God and give an account of all your thoughts, words, and deeds? That is settled when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. But putting their faith and trust in Jesus entails walking with Him in this wicked world. I mean, for those who think all they got to do is say some prayer somewhere, and, uh, uh, you know, that's it. Now I'm good to go. Well, they, they don't have any intentions of walking with the Lord. If you don't have intentions of walking with the Lord, well, okay. You know, you can probably blend in with the world, and uh, you can escape all of the, uh, the persecution that would otherwise come. But you are lost, and you are indeed um, deceived. Putting our faith and trust in Jesus involves 
walking with him through the course of this life, which will find you walking against the grain of this world. And that's why when we come to Psalm 3, we find trouble. We have Psalm 1, introduction. Psalm 2, introduction. Psalm 3, big time trouble. Notice the title of the psalm. It's a psalm of David when he what? When he fled from Absalom. How many are familiar with the story of Absalom? You know, that the story is a little bit complicated. I'll try to simplify it as quickly as I can. It goes all the way back, really. It starts around 2 Samuel 11 when David is, you know, as king, he should have been out with his army. Uh, it was a time when kings went out for war. He remains behind. He's got idle time going on. He's on the roof of his palace. And he happens to look over on the roof of a, a neighboring uh, structure and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. And he calls for her. And he has an affair with her. And she is the wife of one of his most dedicated soldiers. She is impregnated as a result of the affair. And to cover it up, David uh, orders uh, Uriah, her husband, to be brought home. And thinking that he will uh, go home and uh, then he can be uh, fooled into believing that this child is his. This is a really wicked thing that's taking place. When Uriah refuses to go home to his wife, uh, David then sees that it's not going to work. So he sends Uriah out to the battlefield uh, and, uh, with the purpose of uh, being left alone to defend himself. In other words, David really orders his, his murder uh, to cover the whole thing up. Uh, dreadful, dreadful uh, blemish on the life of King David. It's something that should sober us up. I mean, if we don't think we can fall into heinous sin, let's take a good look at what's happening here with King David. If, if he can fall into it, we can too. Uh, so it's a, it's a sober warning for us. Now, the Lord uh, comes to David by way of the prophet Nathan and convicts David of his sins and gives him repentance. And David repents of the sin. Uh, but uh, something else we need to understand is we can find forgiveness in the Lord but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get out of the consequences of what we've done. That's a whole other matter. We can find forgiveness for the things we've done, but that does not mean that we're necessarily going to get out of the consequences of what we've done. Now, the Lord said to David, you know, there's going to be bloodshed in your house. And just a few chapters later, we see this, this uh, rising of Absalom, uh, this son of David's. And uh, Absalom wants David's throne. Now, we need to understand something. Uh, in order for Absalom to get David's throne, his father has to be destroyed. I, I can't begin to imagine the pain of having a child. Now, some of you are expecting children. I can't imagine the pain of having a child that would grow up one day to want something that God has given you so bad that they would be willing to destroy you to get it. And that's what's happening here. Absalom stands at the city gates and he wins the hearts of the people one by one by one, mounting, plotting, conniving, 
It's Psalm 2, friends. If you look at Psalm 2, and you look at verses 1 and 2, he's, he's plotting in vain. He's setting himself against the Lord's anointed. David is the Lord's anointed with the lowercase a. He is the anointed king. He is the one God has chosen and placed on the throne. His son Absalom is plotting against him. And finally, he makes his move. And when he makes his move, David realizes that he has to get out of the palace. And he also has the pain of many of his entrusted counselors who defect from him. And they follow after Absalom. The situation is so desperate that David leaves the palace barefoot and flees from the palace uh, with a small band of people who have remained faithful uh, to David. And that takes us to verse 1 where David says, notice the first two words, O Lord, O Lord. There's a sense in which our English translations kind of veil what's going on there. Notice the capital uh, L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, it means the personal name of God is being used here. Uh, David is not saying, O Lord. He's saying Yahweh. He's calling on him in a personal way here. Uh, that O Lord kind of veils that somewhat. It's a prayer. David is praying, praying and he's saying, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Yes, they are. Uh, the, the, the military of Israel largely has defected from David. And uh, they, they want Absalom as their king. Uh, this means David has to be destroyed. So David is in flight. But notice verse 2. Verse 2 has a sting to it. Many are saying of my soul... Of my soul. Nefesh is the Hebrew word there. And it literally means the very seat of the emotions. You know, deep down inside the recesses of your heart, that which makes you, you. Uh, uh, that, is, that is what is in view here. They're saying of David's soul that there is no salvation for him in God. In short... What they're saying is that David is forsaken by God is what is being said. Now, we can imagine the sting of these words uh, as uh, really seemingly with a flip of a switch, David is now uh, driven from his palace, driven from his throne. Uh, we're told that he, uh, he leaves the palace, he flees from the palace barefoot. Uh, his head is held low. Uh, and he is literally fleeing for his life and the life of his band of faithful followers. All along, uh, some are whispering and word gets back to him that he is forsaken of God. This is a dreadful, dreadful hour in his life. Serious distress. Now, what I want to do with this this morning is I, I want to show how David deals with this serious distress. And uh, it, it, this is an important concept for us. Right now, by God's grace, perhaps we're not facing any serious distress, but maybe we are. Um, but even if at the present hour all is calm, listen, everyone, with a flip of the switch, that can change. And when it does, how do we deal with it? It can change with one phone call. 
Last night, as um, I was after the service, as I was just catching up with some of the folks that I don't get to see very often, folks from the Presbytery, I, I was talking with Ron Pritz, who's not far from us. He's down in Steubenville now, pastoring a, a church in Steubenville. And, and we were talking about the course of this culture and really the, the, the growing hostility of our culture towards Christianity. And uh, at the rate that it's becoming increasingly hostile is a bit scary. And um, there were a number of prayers lifted last night as we were ordaining Jim that seemed to go like this. Um, Father, we ask that uh, you would be with Jim and be with the younger men in the ministry who will face things that us older pastors have not had to face. Now, this doesn't just apply to pastors. If our intentions are to follow the Lord Jesus through the course of this rapidly changing culture, there is distress ahead, isn't there? There is distress ahead. Some of you who are much younger than myself, uh, you may face things that I might not have to face. So... Maybe we're not facing troubled times and we can think, oh, can I check out on this one? No, please pay attention. How does David deal with it? How does David deal with it? Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. What's David doing? Someone would say, wait a second. There's a shield in here. I know about that shield. That's the shield of faith. Uh-huh. That's the shield of faith. You see how important that study in Ephesians 6 is? This is spiritual warfare. Satan is attacking the anointed one is what is going on. This is spiritual warfare. What is David doing? He's putting on the shield of faith. He's also putting on the belt of truth. As he assesses the situation, he's not going to walk in falsehood. He's walking in truth. What is true? What is true is what God told Abraham. I am a shield about you. That is what's true. What is true is that God is a shield for all of those who take refuge in him. David is taking refuge in God. He's putting on the belt of truth. And he's actually wielding the sword of the Spirit. He's wielding it to himself. And as we study the Psalter, we're going to find out that this is a common thing that the psalmist does. He preaches to his own heart. He preaches to himself. David is preaching to himself. He's putting on the belt of truth. He's putting on the breastplate of righteousness. He's putting on the shield of faith. He's wielding the sword of the spear. He's putting on that helmet over his head. I'm not going to think these kinds of thoughts. They're telling me that I'm forsaken of God. I will not think that because it's not true. The belt of truth tells me so. No, the Lord is my glory. What does that mean? Well, David may be descending from the throne. He may be descending from his palace. He may be fleeing out of Jerusalem, but he is still the Lord's anointed. There's a powerful message there for us. If you're in Christ Jesus... The world may rail against you, but they cannot take away the fact that you've been chosen in God. 
And God is the glory of His people. And we need to always remember that. You can do what you want with me, but you can't change the fact that God is my shield. You can't change the fact that the Lord is my glory. And you can't change the fact that He is the lifter of my head. What does that mean? We can imagine David fleeing out of that palace. I don't think we can imagine the heartache that he's experiencing. But I think we can start to imagine it. A child wanting something that God has given you so bad that they're willing to see you destroyed so they can get it. That would bring your head down low, wouldn't it? But he realizes that God is not going to leave him like that. He realizes that God is going to lift his head. See that? That's the helmet of salvation, isn't it? I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. A focus shift has taken place. When we're facing serious distress, you should write that down somewhere where you'll remember it. We have to shift our focus when we're facing serious troubles. We have to shift our focus from those troubles. Because the evil one will want to get us engulfed in those troubles and keep us focused on those troubles. We've got to shift our focus to the Lord. We've got to shift our focus to the Lord. David is not uh, trying to ignore his troubles by any means. He's bringing those troubles to the Lord. But he's bringing those troubles to the Lord in such a way that his focus shifts from the troubles, from the enemies, to the Lord himself. So that he can readjust his thoughts, so he can readjust his soul, so he can realign his soul with the truth of the matter. And that's, that's imperative. That is something we must do when we're facing troubles. Whatever those troubles might be, we have to shift our focus. Now look at verse 5 and 6. Astonishing verses. I lay down and slept. What? I lay down and I slept. How can you sleep, David? There's thousands of people seeking your life to kill you. Of all people, David, you should know that. David was an expert in war. He was one bad dude. As we might say in the vernacular today. You don't want to mess with him. How many battles did he fight? How the strategic genius of David. David was no guy to mess with. But he understood the danger he was in. When you're out, no matter, no matter who you are, when you're outnumbered like this, this is dangerous. Don't get in your mind that David is like an ostrich sticking his head in the sand thinking his problems will go away. No, he realizes that he's in danger, but he sleeps. It's time to sleep. And he lays down and he slept. And he wakes again. For this reason, Psalm 3 is often called a morning psalm. A morning psalm. I lay down and I slept. And you know what? I woke up. Why did I wake up? It's because the Lord sustained me. Another important truth here. If you're in Christ Jesus, your life is not in the hands of your enemies. Your life is in the hands of God. 
your life is in the hands of God. No, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Why? Because David is trusting in the fact that he is really such a valiant warrior. No, it's because the Lord sustains him. It's because the Lord is his shield. The Lord is his glory. The Lord is the lifter of his head. His strength is in the Lord. Kind of sounds like Ephesians 6 and verse 10, doesn't it? Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. No, David has a strength that's unknown to the world. It's the strength of the resurrecting power of God, the strength of the ascending power of God. It's a veil that cannot be pierced. We get to verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Uh, this is military language, actually. Arise, O Lord. Moses often said this as they broke camp during the wilderness wanderings. Notice the word, save me, O my God. I read a story this week from an Old Testament scholar who was commenting on Psalm 3, and he was talking about being at church camp when he was a 10-year-old boy. And uh, one night during that week, uh, after dark, as everyone was in bed and the lights were out, the pastor asked the children, the boys, said, um, uh, fellas, you know, how many of you are saved? And uh, one boy, a friend of this scholar, childhood friend of the scholar said oh pastor uh, me and my friend just got saved the other day we were walking along the road and this car lost control and swerved in our direction but at the last minute recovered control of the car and, and missed us Jesus saved us and this scholar thought to himself that night he didn't say anything but he thought to himself that night that's not what pastor's talking about he's talking about you know Spiritual salvation. But in his commentary, he relented. He goes, I think my childhood friend knew more about salvation than I realized at the time. And perhaps we're quite delinquent in praising God for all the times we've been physically delivered by Jesus. The other day, when they said we were going to get that bad storm, and by God's grace, we didn't get it. I mean, some counties in West Virginia have been ravished by it. I thought I, I need to get the gutters cleaned up in my house. And it was on Wednesday, by the way. I didn't have much time to do it. I wanted to get it done before Bible study. So I threw a ladder up and I'm in a big hurry. You know, I was above, I was at one of the highest points in our, our roof. I was right, not quite above the driveway, but almost above the driveway. And I was picking leaves up in a hurry and I lost my balance. And I just about went over the edge. But I didn't. Why? Does Jesus save me? We have a tendency to think about salvation only in spiritual terms. And we have the opposite tendency when we're praying for the sick to not think about them in spiritual terms. We need to bring these together. I try to do that with my prayers all the time. That we would bring these things together, especially in the Old Testament. Physical salvation and spiritual salvation are, are really closely aligned. When David says, save me, he, he wants saved from the edge of the sword. He wants saved from the edge of the sword. Save me, oh my God. And notice what he says at the end of verse 7. This gives us some troubles. 
For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. We struggle with those passages, some of us, more than others. We say to ourselves, wait a second, I mean, David's praying for the enemies to be struck and for their teeth to be broken. I mean, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. When Jesus is on the cross dying, he prays for his enemies. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. How can both of these things be true? Some will say, well, what's going on here is, okay, being struck on the cheek, you strike my enemies on the cheek, that's a rebuke, uh, that's a way of humiliating the, uh, uh, the enemy. You know, when Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, you know, it's that thing that's going on. So, in, in one way, it, and this is true, it's not that this is untrue, but in some ways it kind of tempers what's going on here. And when it says, okay, you break the teeth of the wicked, that means to render them powerless. And this is perfectly true. You know, imagine being attacked by a dog. You know, the dog is growling from a distance and you see it charging at you. And then just as it comes to pounce upon you, it growls at you and you notice it doesn't have a single tooth in its mouth. Okay, what do you do at that point? Like, really? The dog is harmless at this point. He can't bite you. He has no teeth. This is true. All of this is true. But it seems to me that it tempers it too much. And I'm going to tell you why. And it's important that we see this. There's a contest going on between David and Absalom. And it's a contest to the death. I mean, David understands this. David commands his officers, you know, as they go out... He says, listen, please don't let anything happen to Absalom. Please don't let anything happen to Absalom. Why is David saying that? Because he knows it's a contest to the death. But maybe he can save his son nevertheless. But Absalom has committed the highest form of treason that can be committed. And that has been a capital offense in most governments and most nations forever, as long as there's been governments and nations. It's wishful thinking on David's part. It's a contest to the death for, for David to be saved, for his prayer to be answered. His enemies in this one are going to have to be destroyed. Just like for the enemies to be victorious, David will have to be destroyed. This is messy. And when we try to temper it and try to make it nice and neat... We take the messiness out of it because we don't want the messiness to be in it. But then it becomes unrealistic. Listen, everyone. You don't need me to tell you that life is messy. It is a mess. And quite frankly, one of the things I love about the Psalter and I love about the Bible is it makes no effort to clean it up. It is what it is. And it is 100% realistic to life. But these enemies that are after the Lord's anointed are going to be destroyed so that salvation can take place for the anointed. And I think that's how we should understand this. David concludes in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It might make a great 
heading for the whole psalm, actually. And then he says, your blessing be on your people, the anointed. He hasn't forgot his people, has he? So in short, the point that I want to bring to you is how do we face these serious problems? We folks shift our focus on the Lord and we put on the armor of God, don't we? Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that, Father, if we had more time, we could draw some lines. We could draw some lines between David and Jesus and Jesus as well. Jesus as well faced those uh, horrible times where the people reared up against the Lord and His anointed and yelled, crucify Him. And Jesus Himself said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, but Jesus too wore the armor of God. It was His armor to wear. And the last thing that He said on the cross was, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he rested. And Father, we see this uh, and how it points to Christ Jesus. We see this very clearly. And Father, we ask that you would help us to see the line from Jesus to ourselves. That as we face serious hardships, that Father, Psalm 3 and many other psalms like it would be our guide. That we too may walk uh, in fidelity with David and more so in fidelity with Jesus. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen.